Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In part two, Kelly, Mira, and Mike turn their focus to the likely approaches a future democratic administration would take towards trade issues, defense policy, and democratic values in the creation of an Asia grand strategy. What elements of the Trump-era national defense strategy, if any, might a future Democratic president continue in their own Asia grand strategy? The group also touches on polling from the Center for American Progress that identifies the policy priorities of the young voters who make up a large part of the progressive electorate. Finally, Mike asks Kelly and Mira about the means by which young progressive grand strategists can find their footing within the Asia policy community. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard podcast. I'm Mike Green from CSIS and Georgetown University. And, and joining me are two of the rising stars on Asian strategic thinking, foreign policy and defense, Kelly Magsiman and Mira Rapp Hooper. Mira, what about the Democratic administration to be determined and defense spending? But also, let me throw in trade, which is another area where traditionally uh, Democratic administrations have not been seen as pro-trade. I think that high ground has been ceded. <laughs> by the Trump administration. I think uh, that's, you know, it's a free-for-all now. I don't think either party can claim um, the high ground on that one. But that's, you know, for Asian allies, that's the two, those are two of the things they really look at. I mean, if you asked most Asian allies what their ideal administration would be, it would be a Republican defense budget and trade policy, traditional, not Trump, with a Democratic administration's commitment to diplomacy and multilateral institution building. They, the, our poor <laughs> allies never get the whole package. They got to sort of take one or the other. But it is, you know, things are topsy-turvy now. So, Mira, what do you think? Is there a good news story to tell about defense, but also trade for a, a democratic administration if we get one? Yeah. So I'll take the defense piece first and just embroider a little bit on Kelly's great answer, um, which is to say um, that I think there there is a lot that a Democratic president can do in terms of the way we're thinking about defense qualitatively um, in some other ways, too. In particular, um, I think it's really likely that a Democratic president could rethink the way that we do R&D, um, could focus in on the relationship between Washington and Silicon Valley, um, and could really invest in trying to harness American existing um, and potential potential technological competitiveness to national advantage. Um, so that's a place where without necessarily spending much more, um, we sort of lead the world or we do lead the world in, in cutting edge technologies um, and many of the technologies of the future. Um, but there are a number of things about the relationship between Washington and Silicon Valley and the way that we harness that potential more broadly um, that could be vastly improved, especially in a world where we're thinking more about competition with China. Um, and so not only does that include improving the relationship with Silicon Valley, but it includes doing things like making very targeted investments in universities and researchers who are um, developing the technologies of the future that we're going to need to rely upon. Uh, but I would also note that there is another qualitative area of emphasis that a Democrat has a lot of room to improve upon, and that is um, in thinking about gray zone 
own competition, in particular with uh, competitors like China. We, of course, uh, had a national defense strategy under this administration, which highlighted gray zone competition as a key um, element and domain of competition. And of course, it's not just one domain. Um, Gray zone is sort of a catch-all term that we use to refer to anything that occurs subconventionally, but it can include cyber, it can include maritime, it can include economic coercion. Um, But one fundamental feature of this type of competition is that it tends not to occur in the high-end defense domain. If it did, it wouldn't be gray zone by definition. Um, And as a result, it can be really vexing to try to coordinate resources bureaucratically um, to aggress gray zone challenges in a really proactive way. Um, So to embroider again upon Kelly's answer, without making radical cuts to the defense budget, a new Democratic administration can and should absolutely be prioritizing the types of uh, foreign policy tools that are necessary to engage in a really serious way in gray zone competition, many of which come through the State Department, um, which could certainly have a coordinating role in the NSC, um, which probably involve more elements of Treasury, um, but are not just about how much we're spending in the defense top line and indeed um, could withstand very modest defense cuts if they uh, majorly increase the United States' ability to compete uh, in the gray zone with countries like China. On the trade space, I'll just say briefly... Um, that while I think we would certainly agree with you that this administration has sort of seeded the high ground um, when it comes to trade, I do think there are a variety of perspectives on the Democratic side of the aisle. Um, various tolerances um, for keeping some forms of tariff in place, but a strong consensus um, that leveling tariffs against our allies is woefully counterproductive um, and not the way we want to be engaged economically in the world. Um, but also a strong belief that completely unalloyed embrace of globalization um, without consideration of its differential effects has not necessarily benefited the United States politically or its allies and partners across the globe politically. Um, So I do think there is a lot of room for a trade policy in a democratic administration um, that very much continues to emphasize economic interdependence, um, that is certainly pro-trade, but that thinks of trade from a lens that fundamentally seeks to uh, protect the American people, not in an America first um, kind of hyper nationalist way, um, but in a way that calls for a sound trade policy that does not just simply embrace all aspects of globalization uh, without serious scrutiny. I think that's right. I would add a couple more points on the defense side um, as I was listening to Miro thinking, you know, another big area is how we approach our alliances, I think will be really, really important in terms of our defense strategy and, you know, networking those alliance. We have allies who are highly capable, Australia, Japan, uh, et cetera, who can, you know, play a different kind of role, frankly, in the region than they have been playing in the past 70 years. So really thinking about how we use our allies, how we partner with our allies, how we, um, you know, ensure that their comparative advantage is also coming through in that relationship. And then the other piece is the how, it's not just the what and the how much, but the how. And so how we operate to sort of build on the on the gray zone issue, what are the operating concepts of competition going to actually be? What are the, the effective ones going to be? And I think that is where the Department of Defense needs to do more work uh, and more thinking about how to, to adjust uh, its operating concepts to the new environment. I think we think differently about how to approach the China issue on trade and economics. And part of it is that we think a collective approach is a better way to do this rather than taking on China by ourselves, but doing oh, yeah. it with our friends. 
there's some fundamentals of uh, economic st- statecraft that we think are missing in the current approach that we would certainly try to pursue. Yeah, I think four years of Donald Trump, if he if he's replaced by a Democrat, will be a an extended teachable moment <laughs> about <laughs> how you approach competition, including on economics, where we're as you say, fighting our posse, our friends, while we're going after the the main violator. Um, let me turn to you. Mentioned it both the earlier, but um, democratic values. I mean, these are fundamental to American foreign policy strategy, in my view, and as I've written, have been so from the beginning. But they're also political and situational. So Jimmy Carter championed human rights in part because of the Vietnam War, and then Ronald Reagan championed democratic values in part because Jimmy Carter had been um, hard on democratic allies, and so it's it's always a bit situational. And after uh, Iraq, the Democratic Party. I thought, turned a little bit against uh, human rights and democracy. You know, Kurt and Michael Hamlin had that hard power book, which was basically a, a, an endorsement of, of seizing the realist mantle from Republicans after the Iraq war. But then 2016 happened and the Russians interfered in our election. And it sure seemed to animate democratic foreign policy intellectuals. And so I guess the question is, we came out of the woodwork is what you're saying. Yeah. So is this, you know, are democratic values important on our foreign policy because the Russians took the election away from you? Or, or do you think there's a broader understanding, which you guys both obviously have, among the foreign policy establishment on the democratic side, that this is actually really critical for how we approach China and Asia? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, for, from where I sit, uh, first of all, democratic values have always been important to me in, in the conduct of American foreign policy. I think it's what makes us essentially different mm-hmm. <laughs> from the China and the Russians in the world. But also, I think, it, especially in Asia, I actually think our our democratic values are a comparative advantage for us. And I think we don't think about it that way. We see you know values and human rights as kind of a, a hindrance to execution of American foreign policy interests. But I actually think we should be thinking about it totally differently in the context of the US-China dynamic. And I think you know the thing that we offer that China doesn't offer is that we want an Asia-Pacific that allows for countries to make their choices both economic choices and security choices free of coercion. Mm-hmm. And f- undergirding all of that is is a democratic values approach. And if you don't have that as a ballast to what the Chinese are pursuing, then you're going to have a fatal complete world uh, in the Asia-Pacific. Mira? Yeah, I uh, tend to agree very much with Kelly. I will say that, you know, the the reaction to Iraq that you talk about, I think, does linger in the Democratic Party um, to some degree. Um, but that is different than saying that we can't have democratic values as a touchstone of American foreign policy. I think the place where that blowback still rings true is in the idea of democracy promotion when it is synonymous with regime change and wars of choice to change regimes. And that is something that I think you will see all Democratic candidates shy away from. And indeed, um, we already have. But that is a far cry from saying that our values shouldn't stand um, at the center of our foreign policy. And indeed, I think because of what the current president has represented um, in his embrace for autocrats, in his, uh, you know, obvious sort of distaste for emphasizing human rights and American values, there is a clear contrast to be drawn that really suggests that most candidates uh, should be embracing American American values, human rights, and democracy support, if not uh, active promotion as centerpieces of their foreign policy as well. It's always interesting to me uh, as a 
veteran of the Bush administration who um, whose remit ended at the Duran line in, in 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 Pakistan. I did not work on the Middle East, but it's always interesting to me that the 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 left portrays uh, the Iraq War and Afghanistan as wars for regime change and democracy, and but so does the right now. The 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 Koch brothers um, restrainer um, uh, group also sort of is against military intervention for democratic purposes, and actually that's fine because we went, did not go into Iraq for democratic. Uh, regime change purposes. We that became the mission over time. Um, and if the bottom line everyone draws is we don't want to go into um, major wars to promote democracy, that's fine because that's actually not what most all of our conflicts have been, including Iraq. It's a bit of a straw man. I'm happy to accept if what it means is that um, there's a mainstream Republican and Democratic view that we care about human rights and democracy, that it should be a priority. We're just not going to fight wars over it. I, I can live with that. Fair, unfair, Mira? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that is fair. Um, and I, I think that's basically where the American people are now. Yep. Um, and that is something that you see on both sides of the aisle, frankly. Um, you know, exactly as you mentioned, and not just amongst sort of libertarian restrainers, is there is actually a huge appetite, um, you know, reflected in various public opinion polls for the United States to remain in a global leadership position, um, to be a leading power, to be deeply involved in multilateral institutions, to have alliances, to sort of be setting the world's agenda, but there is a strong antipathy um, for military interventions unless our absolutely overwhelming vital interests are at stake. That, of course, is something that could change. We've seen the pendulum swing back and forth many times over the course of the last several decades. Um, but at least for now, I think that you're seeing the Democratic candidates um, across the board pretty much abjure the idea um, of intervention uh, with regime change in mind um, in response, certainly to Iraq, um, but also to this very strong public sentiment that is by no means just a democratic feature. It's interesting in the Chicago Council polling, the percentage of Americans who say we should fight to defend Japan or Korea is uh, high. It's it's pretty much at a, at a, yeah. at a historic high. Um, but on the Middle East, there's a real uh, hesitation, opposition to any kind of military intervention. So it's good for all of us Asia hands. Speaking <laughs> of public opinion, Kelly, your team did a really interesting national survey on what millennials and younger Americans think. All generations, it was actually but, a nationwide poll. Yeah. But you were the most interesting findings were about we broke the, it out, yeah. the next generation, which yeah. is relevant to this discussion because the Democratic Party has uh, the youth vote. You know, it's a problem for the Republicans. So what, what the younger voters think is going to have a big impact on what a Democratic administration might look like. And tell us a little bit about some of the findings from yeah. that survey? What worries you? What's encouraging? So I would say, you know, for, for a progressive internationalist like me, it was uh, a mixed bag, mm -hmm. <laughs> frankly, on this front. I think, for example, on democracy itself, sort of people's views of democracy being important as a concept in American foreign policy, there was a significant generational difference between, say, baby boomers and millennials. Millennials was 57 percent. Uh, I think democracy is, is important. And 75% of baby boomers do. So you just sort of see, even though it's still a majority of millennials that view it that way, certainly boomers have a much uh, different perspective. How old are millennials now? In their 20s? So millennials, oh God, they, now they go up to like early 30s, I think mm -hmm. now. Um, it's constantly shifting. Uh, I am not a millennial. I'm a Gen Xer. Gen X, right? I am, I am, I am the, the, the I'm the lost generation of Gen X. Yeah, right. <laughs> that seems to get the, skipped over. I'm the bottom <laughs> rung, the last 
part of the baby boomers. Um, so yeah. we forgot about you Gen Xers. So millennials are they're just Just democracy as a concept, even capitalism, their attachment to some of the sort of traditional grounding of mm. American you know, politics and foreign policy are just not as tight as they were in, in, for older generations. The other thing that was interesting is, so baby boomers um, and silent generation, which is really, really uh, older uh, folks, their top five foreign policy issues are terrorism was number one still, which is interesting, jobs for Americans, illegal immigration, nuclear threats, and relationships with allies. So that was their top five mm-hmm. ranking. For millennials and Gen Z, it was a different list. It was climate change, climate change, jobs, allies, which is still good. That's good for us <laughs> Asia people. Poverty and human rights, which I think is an interesting dimension given the sort of crossing on the democracy piece, and terrorism. So that was kind of their top five list. Why allies? Why do younger Americans? I think is it's. It I think it Trump's might be a Trump them? effect. I think yeah. it's. I think part of it is a Trump effect. Um, you know, just sort of seeing him out there embracing sort of the autocratics, uh, and also just dumping on allies. Um, and so I think that part of it's probably an effect mm-hmm. uh, ratio. But I, I find that as an Asia policy hand um, and a sort of broader uh, strategy person to be a very comforting (laughs) uh, thing to see that there is some consistency across generations on these issues, which is why I think you'll see a lot of candidates uh, in the primary stress importance of our relationships with Democratic allies in this in this election. This was a one-time poll, right? You don't have a baseline to compare it to? So we ran the poll in March. We, are, we just finished a second round, uh-huh. um, which will be coming out uh, in the near future as soon as we finish. Great. We actually got the data today. So um, we'll be putting out something. And that was much more focused on what are some of the affirmative messages on foreign policy that resonate with American voters. Well, that'll be interesting and important. You, so you, don't, it's, you can't say for sure whether it's uh, intergenerational change or maturation. In other words, you know, people older, who are older care about those issues because they're older. But I suspect it's it's intergenerational. It's, it's what they experienced. Yeah, in their I own think. Lives. It's, I mean, I think you know, younger generations, you know, don't have memories of successful American foreign policy projects. They or, have or nine eleven. Yeah, or even nine eleven. But they have you know twenty years of war that just don't seem to really be going anywhere. And there's not a lot of talk about how to really do anything about it. Um, they've got climate change, which is a really animating issue for younger uh, for younger voters. And I think that is their top. You know, big priority, and if you see it, then there's a level of activism around some of this mm-hmm. as well that I think, you know, it might, you know, makes me feel good about the future because you have this activist spirit uh, coming out, in particular among the Gen Z uh, folks. And they see Xinjiang, and, and they, they see, see things that if you yeah. have a justice, social yes, justice, absolutely. Uh, predisposition would get you interested in Asia. And they speak more Chinese and Japanese than Gen X. They're also more open to the world. Some of the data shows are just more open to the idea of the United States not necessarily being the prime power in the world. They're more open to that changing power dynamic, which is also interesting. Um, Like I think issues like Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, the youth movements there, I think all of this is interconnected. I think people... Um, are focusing, you know, differently on different things in our generations. We focus on hard power and relationships, yeah. and and they're just looking at it through a totally different global generational lens. Because they use that internet machine, <laughs> the interwebs. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, last question on the, along those lines. Somebody once said to me that within the Republican Asia foreign policy world, there's there's a there's a good amount of mentoring. So Rich Armitage, especially, kind of has brought up a lot of people. Is that happening on the Democratic side? Are you guys? Pulling up people below you, or there people you look to. Would, would you do you think there's a nurturing kind of building the next generation, Mira? 
I absolutely do. You know, I would say um, I've certainly found myself to have been mentored by a number of folks from both sides of the aisle, definitely not just exclusively Democrats, um, but who were committed to the idea of there being a cadre of scholar practitioners who wanted to make smart foreign policy. And once again, that obviously includes you first and foremost, Mike, Um, but uh, a number of folks in the field um, who have uh, helped younger folks coming up um, sort of chart their way. Others include, you know, Kurt Campbell, Jim Steinberg, um, even just on Asia. Um, And I've been so, so grateful um, to have that kind of support. But I also think there is an increasing sense um, just in the last few years that the uh, democratic foreign policy and national security establishment needs to fill out its ranks, needs to think more seriously about what it means to have a progressive foreign policy and needs to develop the next generation of talent who can bring that to pass. And indeed, there's been a pretty strong embrace, I would say, of relatively younger folks um, in the quest to envision what that progressive foreign policy might look like. Um, So I would certainly point to um, the work that Kelly is doing as sort of embodying that um, and CAP employing uh, just an incredible cadre of young people. But I would also point to organizations like um, National Security Action, Um, And just, you know, general conversations, be they, um, you know, written roundtables, conferences, workshops that are taking place all the time that are really trying to wrestle with the question of what it means to have a progressive post-Trump foreign policy. Um, And through those networks, absolutely, it is the case um, that scholars and practitioners are trying to help see the thinking of younger folks who will hopefully put those ideas into practice. It may be that precisely because Asia strategy is not that partisan, these are kind of nonpartisan, bipartisan efforts. You know, we have been involved in a number of foreign policy task forces and so forth on Asia. They're almost always bipartisan. There's not a lot of utility in having a partisan task force these days. So it's, it's, it's not just about the Democratic Party. Last question. What would you tell younger progressives, maybe in grad school now, to do to become the uh, Kelly Magsman and Mira Rapuper? of the millennial generation? Gosh. (laughs) Um, I would say one is, you know, A, find a mentor. We just talked a lot about that and how important that is. Um, B, know your brief. Just if you really want to be an expert, you know, you have to show that you can do it (laughs) Um, and just deliver on that um, and just really work hard on it. So part of it's just putting your nose to the grindstone and, and and showing people that you have substance and can deliver. Um, and the other is, is like, you know, kind of find your squad, <laughs> find the people who are your people, your, your friends, your, you know, Mira, I was going to add to Mira's comments. There's a kind of a small network of female mm-hmm. uh, national security folks that is emerging, especially younger generations. And even on the Asia policy side that, you know, we collectively get together, we talk, we exchange ideas and emails. We, we have conferences and things like that. So there is also kind of a network. I think of young female Asia policy hands, which I think is a very nice That's great. Mira? shift. Yeah. So technically, I am answering this question as someone who is herself a millennial, although I will say that I am an old crotchety millennial (laughs) um, by any definition of the term and probably am a lot much closer, much closer to a Gen Xer in my sentiments. But I would absolutely say, um, you know, as, as Kelly suggested, keep your eyes out for mentors. But the way to do that is, you know, not just to walk up to someone and ask them to be your mentor, but to spend time in graduate school thinking about the career that you want to have and keep your eyes open for the folks who have it. 
when you, you know, get the chance to meet Mike Green or Kurt Campbell for the first time, ask them questions about how they got to be where they are and hope that those lead to follow on conversations. Um, a second thing that I would emphasize, which Kelly also pointed to, um, is the basic fact that in DC, we, we tend to uh, maybe emphasize or overemphasize networking. Um, but the best form of networking comes from just being a substantively thoughtful person and having really good conversations with folks who are working in the field about their work and the big questions that are animating them. You don't need to be trading business cards all the time or, um, you know, bending over backwards to get your name out there. You need the right people to figure out that you are thinking smart thoughts about the current problems of the day and the problems of the future. Um, so that comes exactly from knowing your brief, from getting yourself into the room with other smart people who are thinking big um, and for getting a couple of really smart ideas out there when you have the opportunity to speak with them. You do sound like a crotchety old millennial, but you're right. Substance matters. Do your homework, learn your languages, study your briefs, understand the theory. Great advice. So when you're both uh, secretaries of defense and state for the next Democratic administration, I hope you come back. But this has been terrific. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 